Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Job chapter 1. Let's pray together. Lord, as we sit here this morning, we have to say that you have given us everything we need. Not everything we've wanted, but everything we need. And uh, you know what we need. I think of the words of Peter who said, You've given us everything that pertains to life and to godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us. Lord, you know what we need to hear. You know the path we're going to take. Wherever this week and month is going to lead us, We'll discover that you were there before we even got there and you prepared the way and prepared the resources to handle it. I pray, Lord, that in this marriage series, that today's teaching, this installment, that is rarely talked about from a pulpit, would bring encouragement and resource in Jesus' name. Amen. Three and a half years ago, my wife Lenny and I took a journey that we never planned on taking. We joined a club we didn't want to join. It was a journey that would test the vows that we had taken so many years before. Part of the vows say, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. The best way I can describe it is it's like... It's like somebody handed you tickets to get on a train that you really didn't want to get on, but they came to you out of the blue and said, here's tickets, you're going on this train, you can't get off this train until it lets you off. Because it, it felt like that when we went to the doctor and the doctor gave that quizzical doctor look. You know the kind I'm talking about? And just said, hmm, I'd like to run more tests. And I'd like to run them today. You know something's up. And he scheduled a regiment of testing to be done, including a CAT scan, because he said, Lenya, you have a, um, a mass in your abdomen the size of a grapefruit. It needs to be taken out. Surgery was scheduled within a week, and the mass was taken out. I, I was handling it. We were going through that regiment of, of appointments, etc., and I was doing okay until the doctor came out of surgery and he looked me in the eyes and he said, I think we got it all. But then he said, but I want you to know it was malignant. And what that meant to us is that once the wound was healed, there would be a, a series of many months of chemotherapy. Some of you know what that is like. And then the day that's over, you see me in six months, and then six months, and then a year, and there's always another checkup. Always another checkup. Most couples will tell you that sickness isn't what they were thinking of when they shared their marriage vows with each other. That doesn't come into their purview. I was reading the blog of a young couple this week, and she wrote, We had been engaged for 13 months with 22 days until the big day. When Matt, 
age 23, was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. We could never have predicted this with no history in the family, no smoking. Now in the blog she said, God gave us peace, we believe he's in control. But she underscored, this wasn't in our plans. Have you discovered that life is a a series of getting used to things you never planned? So every couple says those vows, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. Everybody says them, but I believe that very few consider what they're saying. Most couples, I think, when they get married, they only hear the better, richer, and health part of that promise. But you see, that's why we say vows. That's why we say promises to each other, because though those vows are general, they're pretty comprehensive in scope. They they cover any and every eventuality that could occur even until death do us part. You see, married couples are never allowed to say, I promise to love you as long as everything goes okay. Or I promise to love you uh, as long as you're pretty and I'm handsome and we make a combined income of over 75000 a year. Or I, I promise to love you, but if, if we get ugly or poor or a disease strikes one of us, we're going to exchange our rings back. Deal? It doesn't work that way. It's a permanent commitment. Marriage vows, as you saw even in the video, are more than a present declaration. They're a future commitment. That's why I always ask couples not to say I do, but I will. I do means now. I will means now and in the future. And some of you said your vows so long ago. So what was future to you then is present to you now. You're today in the midst of some kind of suffering, some kind of challenge. For some it's financial, for others it's relational, for others it's health issues, like what we want to talk about. I think it's best if you see your marriage like the 20th floor of a building that has no exits. So that if a fire breaks out on the 20th floor, there's no windows for you to jump out of. There's no skylights for you to climb through. There's no elevator or staircase that'll take you to the bottom and get you out. A fire breaks out on the 20th floor, you have one of two options. Number one, burn to death. You let the problem consume you. Or number two, you fight the fire together. And the firestorm of health challenges can be pretty monumental. I look over a congregation and some of you Um, I know by name and by face and by circumstance, and I know that you have suffered in the area of health issues, or you've lost loved ones, or you're dealing with that presently. So I've asked you to turn to Job chapter 1 and 2 for this reason. I want to look at this through the lens of Mr. and Mrs. Job. We usually consider just one, and that's him. But there was a married couple involved here. And what happened to them is something that we can learn from. So I want to notice four principles in Job 1 and 2. The first is the most obvious. Sickness is universal. It's universal. It's common to all mankind. Did you know 
that most Bible scholars consider the book of Job to be the oldest in the Bible. They fit Job in the times of the patriarchs, which is between 2000 B.C. and 1000 B.C. Chronologically, for reasons I don't have time to go through right now, the book of Job fits best after the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and before the life of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. That means, if that's true, that Job is like one of the oldest dudes ever. And I bring that up to show you that suffering goes all the way back to the beginning. All people have suffered. All people at some time in their life have gotten sick. Even good people. Even God's good people. Job chapter 1 verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. I don't know where Uz is exactly. I have a clue, but I don't know. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. The word greatest would be better translated the largest. Or a better translation would be he was the heaviest. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking in terms of body type. They're going to have some fat old dude named Job in a tent. But that wouldn't be the idea. The idea of this Hebrew word is that he had a heavy or weighty reputation. He was a man of integrity, he loved his God, he hated evil, and people knew him with that weighty reputation. In fact, in the Bible, Job is compared to Noah and Daniel in Ezekiel chapter 14. In the New Testament, he's seen as the example of perseverance, James chapter 5. All of that to say that no one deserved suffering less than Job. No one got it perhaps as much as Job did. Few have suffered like Job have suffered. And yet he was a godly man. And this is what bothers us about the book of Job. This is what unhinges us a little bit about reading this book. We don't like it because we're dealing with a guy who was a man of integrity, who loved God, who served the Lord, and yet he was stricken with disease and hardship. And it bothers us because typically whenever... A problem like of this magnitude comes close to our lives, we typically say, why would a God of love allow that? How could God, if he loved me, allow that to happen? Do you remember Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus was sick? Jesus wasn't around. He was sick, looked like he was going to die. They sent him a note. This is John chapter 11. Remember what it said? The one whom you love is sick. It's a very telling statement. The one whom you love is sick. You love Lazarus, Jesus. But the one you love is sick and it looks like he's going to die. Come quickly. Sickness shouldn't surprise us. Even when it strikes the ones that God loves. 
Because the man that Jesus loved was still a man. And if you look in Scripture and you look throughout history and you look around, you understand that sickness is universal. It happens to everyone. I remember when Dr. Walter Martin, who's now in heaven, came and spoke here. He said, Skip, we all die of our last disease. Very profound, isn't it? It'll strike you eventually. In chapter 5 of Job, he will say, Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. You can count on it. It's like a law of nature. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my faves, said, The love of Christ does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of human life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from disease. Three tragedies struck the life of Job. First was terrorism. If you look in verse 15, it mentions the Sabians raided them and took them away. Verse 17, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. These were nomadic tribes like Bedouin tribes who went out and raided. They're from the Saudi Arabian Peninsula and they went out in ancient times frequently to raid, to conquer, and to plunder. That was number one, terrorism. Number two, natural disaster. What insurance companies call acts of God. Look down at verse 16. The fire of God fell from heaven. That's probably a description of a lightning strike that hit the earth and a fire ensued. Verse 19, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. Quite a wind to knock down a house. You know that in this part of the world, especially in the Arabian Peninsula, there's um, a wind called the Shamal. I did a little research on it. It can get so fierce that it can strip the paint off automobiles. And you think you have it bad here in the spring. That's a wind. But it didn't just strip the paint off of the cars or the camels. It took the lives of Job's kids, all of them, in chapter 1, die by terrorism and natural disaster. There's a third thing that happened to Job. Disease. Chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd, a little piece of broken pottery with sharp edges, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Now we don't know what disease he had. There's been several guesses by the medical community. Some see this as the first stage of leprosy. Boils break out on the skin. That's the first manifestation of myobacterium leprae, it is called, the technical term. Others say it was a case of elephantiasis. I don't think Job cared what you called it. He just knew it hurt immensely. So he went, here's what I want you to get from one day where life is good, got the kids around, I'm eating a falafel with my wife in the tent, to I'm dazed and confused and I have this debilitating and life-threatening disease. 
All of that to point to our first truth. And that is sickness is universal. It's common to mankind. The second truth is that though sickness is universal, sickness, when it happens to you, feels personal. It's very isolating. It's confined to me. Here's the problem I've discovered with our typical reading of the book of Job. Most of us know what happens to Job and we consider him. But most of us forget that it also happened to Mrs. Job. They were a married couple. There was a mutual pain that happened. Think about this now. Both of them lost property. Both of them lost income. Both of them lost all of their children. The pain that Job felt was the pain that Mrs. Job felt. There's a commonality and a mutuality in this pain. Yet, on the other hand, it's very personal. Job comes down with the disease. Mrs. Job becomes the caregiver of one who has the disease. Now the pain is becoming more personal and more isolating. Here's the deal. When sickness hits a family, everyone is affected, not just the one who gets sick. And it feels very personal. They share the common experience, but it touches each one differently. One may be vocal, one may be withdrawn, one may get angry, one may get weepy, still another may be very positive, and we're going to work through this. But each one feels like they are experiencing it, and no one else is quite like that. So the caregiver, the Mrs. Job, might say, you don't understand how hard this is for me. I have to care for you 24-7. While the one with the sickness, in this case Job, could think, look, I'm the one with the disease. You don't understand how isolating this experience feels. You see, that's the nature of suffering. It's so all-absorbing that typically you are the only one you think about when it happens. You're carrying your own portion of the weight. So here's the key. The key is to move from the personal to the practical. It's very personal. You have to move that to the practical. How do you do that? By communication. At some point, you have to communicate your feelings to every other person in that family system so that everyone understands how the others are coping with it, what the expectations are, because some of those expectations are unrealistic and others are realistic. You need to communicate that because decisions perhaps may have to be made about long-term care. You may have to bring a nurse in. You might have to bring a therapist in. Or you might have to make a decision about permanent care, a facility, a nursing home. But when there's clear communication and a clear plan that is understood by all, and what our part, what our role is going to be in this, that moves it from the personal to the practical, and that makes life more manageable. And a good counselor or, and a good friend, a good friend can help that family manage through that. I bring up a good counselor because in chapter 2, Job has some friends that come and act as counselors. And the bulk of the book, the rest of the book, is about their bad counsel. Right? It got so bad that Job finally turned to them and said, Miserable comforters are ye all. 
You came as my counselors, came as my friends, but I consider you my frenemies. You're not really helping me out a lot. But what I want you to know, because we're not going to get into that, is that at first these friends, these counselors, these comforters were good. They were great. At first they were awesome. And here's why. They didn't say a single word. They just sat there and they listened and they watched. And can I just tell you that's helpful? There's something called the ministry of presence. You just show up. You don't have to say much. You can offer a prayer. You don't, don't have to explain everything. But you just listen. But Job's counselor, counselors didn't stop there. They opened their mouths. And they spoke for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. It's a long book. After chapter after chapter. <laughs> and with everything they said, Job felt more and more isolated, more personal, more withdrawn. So let me give a word to the well. If you're healthy and you're going to get around somebody who isn't, you don't have to explain everything to them. Well, let me give you the theological reasons for the suffering of the world. Stop. Not going to be helpful right now. Listen to the words of one sufferer. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings and of why it happened, and of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true, but I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me, and he didn't talk much. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted, and I hated to see him go. Listen, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback with somebody else's suffering, but it's not helpful. Walk softly around a broken heart. A good friend will do that. Sickness is universal. Sickness feels personal. Here's a third principle that we see in Job. Sickness can be detrimental. Because when one spouse gets sick, things get complicated in the relationship very quickly. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, thank you, sweetheart. (laughs) But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. You know what she's saying, right? She's saying, would you quit being Mr. Holy here? Just get your life over with. God will probably strike you dead if you just blaspheme him, and then you won't have to suffer. You could have cut the tension in that tent with a knife. The dynamic between Mr. and Mrs. Job is very complicated. The sickness is detrimental to their relationship at this point. I just got to stop here for a moment. You heard what she said. I got to tell you that I think Mrs. Job has suffered more at the hands of 
preachers and expositors than perhaps anyone else in Scripture. I'll give you an example. Augustine labeled her as Diaboli Adjutrix, which means the devil's advocate. John Chrysostom said she's the devil's best scourge. Why did the devil leave him this wife, he asks? Because he thought her a good scourge by which to plague him more acutely than by any other means. wonder what John Chrysostom's marriage was like. The reformer John Calvin calls Job's wife Organum Satani, which means the embodiment of Satan. Now, can I just say, I think she deserves a little bit fairer, more generous treatment than that. And here's why. She just lost ten children in a single day. And her husband has a disease, and she doesn't know what the future of that is going to be. And it all happens pretty quickly. So this I see, though it's not right, this is an emotional reaction that happens to a person. It's an outburst that happens when this kind of tragedy piles up. And I say that because... I don't want you to be surprised when you get somebody who's around somebody who's just experienced deep grief and tragedy. Things might come out of their mouths and you might say, well, that's not very Christian. Yeah, but that's a gut emotion you're hearing. Hey, did you know, by the way, that we are hardwired in our brains to be emotional first and logical second? Now, hear me, especially those of you who tend to be legalistic. We're hardwired to be emotional first, rational second. That's what I mean. Every impulse, every impulse we, we experience, whether it's sight or sound or touch, enters our brain via the base of our spinal cord. Before it ever reaches the frontal lobe where we deal with things rationally, it first goes through the limbic system, which is where emotions are produced. So that a person is emotional first. When something happens, they're emotional first and they're logical later. They deal with it differently as time goes on. It's the way we're made. So this is her, I believe, emotional outburst and he comes right back at her. You're a foolish woman. It's just tense in that relationship. Now, I'm not going to let her off the hook completely. This is still bad advice. Blaspheming God is never a good idea, even on the worst day. This just not good counsel. But here's the, here's the point. Sickness has complicated the marriage relationship. And it can be detrimental to it. See, this is, this is a typical scenario. Somebody in the family gets sick. Let's say the husband gets sick. He feels guilty that he's sick. He shouldn't feel guilty, but he feels it. The caregiver, the wife, feels fearful of the future. What is this going to mean to us, to me, as time marches on past today? According to statistics, 75% of marriages with chronically ill spouses end in divorce. See what I mean? Now, just so you know, that's not even. It's not split between men and women who get sick. I was reading a New York Times article. Uh, an oncologist up in the Seattle area was noticing a trend that bothered him. He was treating brain cancer patients. Mark Chamberlain was his name. And Dr. Mark was noticing that 
When husbands got sick, their wives were with them the whole way and afterwards, all the way through. Whereas he was noticing more and more men drop out of the picture when their wives got sick. And so he asked his colleagues in the area and other institutions to examine this and provide some data. Here's the statement after the data was collected. Women with serious illnesses are seven times more likely to become separated or divorced than men with similar illnesses. In other words, the women being nurturers are going to stick through it. Men will bail more often than women. So if that's true, can I just offer some practical advice if you happen to be in a family that is experiencing someone being sick and you're not sick, you're the caregiver. If you're the caregiver, here's some advice. Number one, stay healthy. Make sure that you diet, you eat right. Make sure that you exercise. Make sure that you get away and get rejuvenated because this could be a long haul for you and you need to be healthy. So stay healthy. Second, stay social. Don't feel bad about having somebody sit your spouse, be there in the house for several hours while you're out at church or with a home Bible study and you're interacting with other people. That's healthy for you as well. Number three, stay focused is good counsel. You're thinking, I'm hyper-focused. Are you kidding? No. I mean, stay focused on the marriage relationship. While you have that sixth spouse, stay focused on the marriage relationship. Example, if he or she can walk, walk with them around the neighborhood. Um, Read aloud to them. The scriptures or a favorite book. Listen to music. Watch a film that you both enjoy. Get a friend on the phone for a few minute conversation with your spouse. Stay focused on nurturing and building up with things that that break up the monotony. So sickness is universal. Sickness feels personal. Sickness can be detrimental. Here's the last one. Sickness should be helpful. I realize that is a very bold statement to say. And I thought about it. And I'll say it again. Sickness should be helpful. In other words, because I believe that God is sovereign, I also believe that He would never allow His children to go through something as serious as ongoing sickness unless He wants to work something deeper into the lives of that couple. That He has deeper, further purposes. Even at the end of the book, chapter 42, Job says, For I know that no purpose of yours can be withheld. (laughs) You think, what on earth, what kind of purpose could God have in mind by allowing sickness to happen? Well, I can think of a few. Ready? Number one, humility. Do you ever struggle with that? Are, Are you like most people where you have some edges on your personality that could use... Honing, sanding, a trial will do that. Sickness will do that. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 said, Lest I be exalted above measure, that is in pride, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. I have seen so much and done so much and it would be so easy for me to be spiritually prideful. So God allowed this physical malady to affect my life. That's humility. 
That's one reason God could allow it. Humility. Here's the second reason. Purity. You know that a goldsmith will put gold in a smelting furnace under the fire for hours and hours to get the impurities scraped off. To make it more pure. With that in mind, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, These trials have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, though refined by the fire, may result in genuine faith. It'll purify you. Few things will purify you like this. So maturity or humility, purity. Here's a third. Dependency. Dependency. Have you noticed that your prayer life gets really good when you suffer? Have you noticed that? If you've been slacking off in your prayer life at all, when sickness hits you, you pray like Abraham or Paul or Peter. It's like, man, what happened to your prayer life? It just got turbocharged by sickness. It kicked it into a whole different kind of a gear. Because you realize, I'm out of strength, I'm weak, I must depend upon someone with greater strength, i.e. the Lord. It's exactly what happened again to Paul the Apostle, that whole thorn in the flesh episode. When Paul writes that, he said, in prayer, he was asking God to take this thing from him three times. Take it away, take it away. Finally, he said, while I was in prayer, the Lord spoke to me and said, my grace is enough for you. My strength is is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul writes, Therefore, I will be glad in my infirmities, or take pleasure in my infirmities, my sicknesses, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. In other words, here's Paul going, I get it. I get it. When I'm sick, I'm weak. When I'm weak, I depend more on you. You're strong, and that's the way you want it. You want me to depend on you. So, humility, purity, dependency, and fourth, I'll close with this, maturity. Maturity. James chapter 1, he says, the trials test our faith. Faith produces, after the testing, perseverance. Let perseverance have its perfect work that you may be perfect. Lacking nothing. The word perfect is mature, teleos in Greek. Mature. So I guess as you grow old, it's best if you grow up. Doesn't always happen. But God wants as you grow older to grow up. And He will use adversity and sickness to get you to maturity. Listen. If every irritation in your life were removed once you were a Christian, you'd be the most shallow human being on the face of the earth. Well, I'm a Christian now. I should be able to confess away problems and sickness. You would be like worthless without that testing that is necessary. I'm going to close with a paragraph. And this is a paragraph that was written by a 20-something-year-old about 50 years ago or more. As a 20-something, he was writing this to his fiancée before they were getting married. They were engaged. He wanted to write her a note about the commitment that they were about to take in marriage. But I want you to listen to the maturity of this 20-something. I want you to know and be fully aware concerning the marriage covenant which we are about to enter. 
I've been taught from my mother's knee and in harmony with the word of God that the marriage vows are inviolable, and that by entering into them I am binding myself absolutely and for life. I am not naive concerning this. On the contrary, I am fully aware that mutual incompatibility and other unforeseen circumstances could result in extreme mental suffering. If such becomes the case, I am resolved for my part to accept it as a consequence of the commitment that we are now making and to bear it, if need be, to the end of our lives together. I've loved you dearly as my sweetheart, and I will love you as my wife. But above everything else, I love you with a Christian love that demands we never act in such a way as to hinder our prospects of entering heaven, which is the supreme desire of both our lives. What a way to say, I love you, sweetie. What a classy way to say it. To say, you know what? I don't know what the future is going to hold. It might get really gnarly. But for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death, not till debt, till death, do us part. And Father, that's where we leave this study. Because whenever we speak about faithfulness, our mind immediately goes to your faithfulness. Your faithfulness toward us. It's new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And in your love, you allow, no, you prescribe things that will produce in us humility, purity, dependency, and all of that spells maturity. It's where you want us to, to be, to live. Lord, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters in this place, in this flock, in this wonderful church, who are struggling with issues of health. Maybe not they themselves, but someone in their family is. Give them the kind of patience and endurance that reflects your own character, a strength beyond theirs as they depend upon you and minister. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.